I'll be reading from Acts chapter 2, verses 36 to 42. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Interesting thing that Jesus said, and Keith referenced it in his prayer, and that was after the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, he said these words. He says, there is much joy in heaven among the angels over one sinner who repents. He's kind of pulling back the curtain. There's not many times in Scripture where you get to peer into heaven and see what's actually going on. You know, we hear a lot about God, but we don't get to see what's going on behind the curtain, so to speak. And yet he says these words after the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. He says, there is much joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Can you imagine the celebration on this day when 3,000 people repented? I mean, can you imagine the party that was going on? I I mean, it is incredible. All of this excitement, and all because Peter preached this sermon. Now, we're doing baptisms after the second service, which I'd love you all, thank you for coming to the first service. It would have been tough in the second, but love you to be there. Um, It's a good time to remind ourselves of the glory of baptism, how it kind of how it kind of visualizes the gospel for us, this this God who desires to save. Now listen, God has always desired to save. This was an exceptional day, no doubt. Uh, But but he he desires to save. You see see the mercy of God in salvation from the very first few pages of the Bible. You you have the, the Bible here. God creates Adam and Eve, and they're enjoying him, and and, and of course, then they rebel against God. They want to go their own way. They want to cast aside the yoke of God and, and be their own gods. And, and what's the first thing after the nature of their sin? What do we find God doing? He's not wringing his hands. He's not stomping his feet. Here's what he says. He says, where are you? Now, he's not confused as to their location. Uh, he's, he's a God who is a shepherd Seeking the lost. They are now lost from God. They're, they're ashamed in their sin. They're hiding. And what's God doing? He's going out after them. He's pursuing them. This is the kind of God of the Bible. Not, not, just, not just in the garden, but as you read through the pages of the entire scriptures, you see him send leaders. You see him send prophets. You see him send kings. And then what does he send? His very own son. His son that will bear the burden of his lost people to draw them back to God. And in our passage in Acts 2, you see him actually send the Spirit upon the apostles so now the apostles can go out and declare the greatness of Christ. 
We have a great passage here. It's so sweet as it describes this salvation. I want you to think of it in three, like links of a chain, because they're all inevitable and they're all essential. Uh, The first thing that you're going to see is that we must hear the gospel well. And that is with conviction. We must hear the gospel well with conviction. That's the first link. And then the next link, which is essential to that, is, is this repentance and being baptized. That follows naturally, spiritually, that follows the preaching of the gospel with conviction. And then, of course, you see the third link is they were added to the number. They engaged the community of faith. So it's one, two, three. It's like links on a chain. You hear the gospel well, leads to conviction. Boom, what should we do? Repent and be baptized. Repent into what? Into the body, into the local church. So you, we're going to see each of those three. I want to just look at those one at a time, hearing the gospel well. So let me remind you of the context of our passage here. The context is 50 days post-resurrection of Christ. So, so it's this Feast of Pentecost, and Jerusalem is filled with pilgrims, that is, people who have come outside of Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And they're gathered there, all kinds of different, they're coming from different lands and they speak different languages. And of course, it's then at Pentecost when God brings the Spirit, as promised by Jesus, and these apostles begin to speak in tongues. Understandable languages is what they spoke. Now, of course, these people from all these different towns are hearing their own languages being spoken by people with whom they knew didn't know those languages. And so this strange phenomena has to be explained. That's what we do. We explain strange phenomena. And they say, well, they must be drinking early. And of course, what prompts Peter's sermon is to try to say no. No, no, no. It's not strange at all. It's the promise of God being fulfilled from Joel chapter 2, where in the last days he'll give his spirit out upon all men and women. Now listen, it's bringing one language of the spirit. Remember back in Genesis 11, he confused the languages. But now he's reuniting the people around himself with one language. He brings one language. And so Peter is explaining that this is not strange at all. It's the promises of God being fulfilled. And then he begins to preach. And and Peter declares that Christ has been crucified for our sins. And then Peter declares that Jesus, who died and was buried, has now been raised from the dead for our forgiveness. And then Peter declares that this Jesus, whom death could not hold, is now ascended to the right hand of God. And proof of all that is the Spirit is now among us. The Spirit is confirming to everybody there that this Jesus is both the Lord of the universe and he's the Messiah of Yahweh. So the Spirit is confirming to the work of Christ. And he's confirming it to them. And this is where we pick up our passage in verse 36. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Boy, you talk about a severe application of a text. I I mean, he explains the phenomena, and he says, you crucified him. I mean, you know what Peter's doing? He's the sower right now. In Jesus' parable, he's sowing the seed, and the seed's falling all over the place. Now, you know, when you preach, when I preach... We always know that there's mixed receptions to the word. Some are ambivalent. You know, they're just, uh, what's he talking about today? Others perhaps are unengaged. 
Others, it may make some initial effect, but not long-term. But others, it sinks deep in the soil, and it brings a harvest, just 30, 60, 100-fold. Well, that's what you see in some hearts here, because do you notice what it says when he said, you crucified him? It says they were cut to the heart. In other words, they were convicted. The expression cut to the heart means that I am sorrow-laden. I am guilt-ridden. I'm now aware of what has happened, that I am convicted. It's not a I feel guilty that I hurt somebody. It's not, you know, that I'm kind of ashamed as to what's been revealed about me. No, there's this deep conviction that I've sinned against God. Now listen, it wasn't that way before. They had heard Jesus preach, most likely. Many of them in Jerusalem had. Uh, They were confident in their righteousness as being Jews. Well, what changed? What, What made them say, what should we do? Well, the Spirit of God had come. The Spirit of God opened their eyes to the reality of their sin. The Spirit of God caused them who were blind to their own sin to see the reality of their sin, and their need for a Savior. Jesus said this would be the case in John 16, 8. He says, but when he, that is the Spirit of God, when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, unrighteousness, and judgment. This is the fruit of God's Spirit. They heard the word, the Spirit moved, and they were convicted over their sin. Do you remember that time that you were convicted over your sin? When the gospel is revealed to you? I mean, too often in conversions, people never reference their sin. They may see their need for Jesus. They may be in a tough crisis and they reach out to Jesus. But but does it ever move to the reality of the nature of conviction before God? Like Like a David, a Psalm 51, against you only have I sinned. And of course, we talked about that a number of weeks ago where he knew that he sinned against others as well. But fundamentally, all sin is against God. You know, now that's not known in our culture and time. 17% of Americans surveyed, only 17% said that sin is against God. Have you come to that place? I, I still remember the car I was sitting in, Carol next to me, and it landed on me like a ton of bricks. I, I had sinned against God with my life. It wasn't even... It wasn't even these simple little sins that I commit. It was just my life has been a sin against God. Absolutely ungrateful living before God. But but for everybody, it's not an event like that. It may be over the course of time. You wake up one day and you're like, I have sinned against God. I, I, I have rebelled against him. I have done those things that have just been serving me. This is what the conviction is speaking about. This I've sinned against God. It's fundamental to our understanding of salvation. If we don't see the sin before God, we don't need the salvation that comes from God. Contrary to popular opinion, it really doesn't lead to a dour, morose Christian. It leads to a Christian that can be satisfied in the forgiveness of Christ. Because without a sense of the depth of our brokenness, you will struggle to enjoy the lifting out of sin into the forgiveness of God. So that's the first link in the chain. They heard the gospel. This this Messiah has come. It's been confirmed by the Spirit. He has come and he's been crucified for our sins. The grave could not hold him. Thank God for that. 
He's been raised from the dead, and now he's at the right hand of God, and it's all confirmed by the coming of the Spirit. And they were convicted. They were cut to the heart. So let's look at the second link of what salvation, how salvation proceeds. They say, brothers, what should we do? And Peter answers casually, repent and be baptized. I mean, it seems pretty simple, doesn't it? Repent and be baptized. Repentance is that response of our heart to the conviction of our sins. So J.I. Packer says that conviction is the soil from which repentance springs. It's like when you grab a hot... So I have been known periodically to pull something out of the oven, and uh, so I I put the, the oven mitt on my left hand, which is needed because that's the hand that I use to open the oven. That's, you're getting an idea. Open the oven, and I go in with my right hand uh, to grab the pan. You don't have to tell me to respond quickly to let go of the pan. I mean, that heat, you pull back instinctively, it seems. When you're convicted as to sinning against God, the response is, God, forgive me. It's like an awareness has been brought to you. God, forgive me. And you, you, you repent. Now, repentance is not, I'm going to try better next time. Repentance is not to be confused with moral resolve. It's not to be confused with you coming to the front when someone asks you to receive Jesus. It's not to be confused. It may involve some of those things, but, but it's not that. Repentance means a change of mind. It's a turning away from my life of self-centeredness, and it's moving towards living by faith in Christ. Now, you may notice here that there is no faith spoken. The the word faith isn't in the text. Isn't it repentance and faith? Well, notice in verse 41, it says they received the word. They received the word. In other words, they believed the word. Receiving and believing is seen as synonymous. You see the exact same thing in John chapter 1, in verse 12, when it says, to all those who received him, And to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see that they're in opposition to one another. They're saying the same thing. They received the word, which means they believed the word, and they repented. So repentance is faith-fueled, right? Repentance is the fruit of faith. They believe that Jesus was the Christ who has been crucified, dead, buried, and now ascended. And so now they repent because of that faith. And that's what we're called to do. Repent in faith. Now what baptism is, he said, repent and be baptized. Uh, Baptism visualizes that repentance in faith. The going down into the water is like going down into death. Death to my old way of life, my self-centeredness, my love of Tom, and my love of my own sin. And I go down into death and I'm coming up new, refreshed. You know, you're going to notice a change. We used to baptize in kind of an oversized baby pool, which has its place. I mean, it fits, right? Baptism is the beginning of the spiritual life. Well, we're going to use this time a horse trough. It hasn't been used by horses, no fear. No fear about that. But, but I love the horse trough because it's like a casket. It's like a tomb, And you're going down into the tomb. You're dying to your old way of life. And you're coming up out like you're being raised from the dead. Like a casket popping open and stepping out. It's a new life. 
where you're given forgiveness of sins and you're given the gift of God's Spirit. That's what baptism is symbolizing. You've repented, you've died, you've turned, and now you're going to live in the newness of the Spirit that God gives you and in the forgiveness of your sins. Happy, joy-filled Christians. That, that's what repentance and being baptized mean. It's the second link of that chain. Now, this is why we don't baptize infants here. We don't baptize infants because, because throughout the Scriptures, repentance and faith always precede baptism. You know, this idea of repentance, I've just explained it to you. You're aware of your sin. You're aware of it, and you are turning. And you're exercising faith. You're choosing to believe. You, know, you see it very clearly in 1 Peter chapter 1, where he says that this baptism that now saves is not the removal of dirt, but it's the appeal to God for a good conscience. Babies cannot appeal to God for a good conscience. They don't even yet know sin. But not only that, and I don't think this is a weak argument per se, but there's no baby baptisms in Scripture. Now, we don't often argue from silence. We don't find that to be a super strong argument. But considering the, the importance of this sacrament, you would think something might be said about it. Now, if you come from a Presbyterian background, perhaps, or a Lutheran background, you say, well, the, the household, you know, in Acts chapter 16, households were baptized, and surely that would have included a baby. Well, it doesn't say that. You're presuming that, just as we can presume there's no baby. But, but here's, I think Luke in Acts 16 actually wants to steer us away from that. Because in 16, he says this. He says, Paul first spoke the word to all of them that were in his house. So the presumption would be here that they all heard the word and understood the word. You wouldn't, I wouldn't preach to a two-year-old. But, but I preach to those who can understand, who are aware. And then I would also say that baptism is the beginning, not of physical life, but of spiritual life. And so this is why we don't baptize children. But, but, but let me also make one further comment. This is why we as a church leadership want to assess the credibility of a person's conversion before baptizing them. Uh, we think it wise and discerning to be hesitant, particularly when, when the candidate may be still living at home and young, like in the teens or early or mid-teens. We hesitate uh, so as to discern the credibility of a person's faith. Now, I recognize that in Scripture, uh, baptisms always follow immediately after faith and repentance. So when you look through the Bible, every time there's conversion, there's, there is a baptism that follows, and I understand that. And the Bible is descriptive of that. It's describing it. It's not necessarily off, you know, making it mandatory, but it's describing it. But I would remind you of this, that, that in the Scripture's times, that when a person chose to be baptized and followed Christ, there would be an immediate response uh, either, either ostracizing from the community or perhaps persecution from the government. But there was always an immediacy to the suffering or the hardship that you would embrace by choosing to follow Jesus. And, and so the, it acted as kind of a filter to discern credibility and genuineness. In our day right now, when, when a child is baptized, it's more of a cause of celebration. 
And, and there's almost an inducement to be baptized early because it would make mom and dad or friends happy. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I just say it kind of clouds our ability to discern. Is this a pre-converting work of grace? Or is there true conversion there? And so as a, as a leadership team, we're trying to think through this well so that we don't provide kind of a false assurance. And so we want to we work to assess the credibility. How do you do this? What evidence do you look for? Well, if the, if the baptism is public, it's good to have a public kind of evidence. In other words, there should be a change in the person being baptized that's outside just the immediate family. You know, it should probably be seen by close friends or perhaps other relatives. Something else is they need to give a, a credible understanding of the gospel and why we are baptized in the first place. Uh, also, we, we want to have evidence of conviction of sin, that when I sin, I self-initiate repentance. I don't always have to be chided into repentance. And, and then I would say another, and this is really important to discern credibility, is, is their understanding of the gospel coming from a person who is mature enough to be self-aware. In other words, are, are, they, are they at a place in life where they're actually making some decisions rightly independent of the parent? In other words, that they feel the tug of sin and they, of their own desire, move away from sin. You know, and the reason I say this kind of maturity in thinking, this awareness, this self-awareness, is, you know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says this. He says, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So Paul presumes that coming to the table, the person has enough self-awareness and, and maturity to be able to process their own life and to confess their sin. Well, clearly, if that's the requirement before the table, that has to be the requirement before the waters of baptism. So they have to be at that place. Now, we don't have an age in mind, per se. We just would like to see that evidence in place. And, and what we're trying to do is just serve the candidate well. Um, one author said it kind of helpfully, I think. He says, uh, your child will not be any less saved by your judicious waiting for more substantial evidence. Now, after serving this church for 18 years, I have baptized people prematurely. I have. And I, I, I regret it. I, I can identify with Paul, uh, the writer to the Corinthians, when he says, I'm glad that I didn't baptize some of you. You know, he's looking back at their behavior and he's actually wanting to distance himself from the fact that, that, that he didn't baptize them. So, so this, is, um, this is where we need wisdom. You know, we talked at the last family meeting about having white paper. So white paper is actually a, a term from, it's more of a British term for some of their policy papers that come out of their government. We've taken it into the business world now, and it's a white paper. It's really a positional paper. And uh, we talked about how we're going to try to start rolling some of these positional papers out as a church. We're not looking to divide. No, positional papers is trying to help give scriptural wisdom to perhaps confusing issues of the day. We want to create a unity in this church around certain positions that we may hold on on baptism, or even on church attendance, or how do we view on the nature of, of genderism? What is man? What is woman? You know, we want to hold some positions to bring clarity to our thinking, an articulate response to the world 
that is biblically saturated. So, so we'll be doing this on baptism on the 15th of October uh, in between the two services. We're going to use the Sunday school hour. We're going to send you the white paper. You're going to get a chance to read it. We'll have a time of explanation and Q&A. We're seeking to build an awareness. We're trying to build a unity, trying to build kind of a, a clear vision for these things. So, so all that's to say the first the first link is we want to hear the gospel well. And then the second link is we want to respond by repentance and faith. But notice what follows here. Uh, look what he says. What follows the waters of baptism? It says that they were added to their number. Now, what number are they added to? Well, they're added to the Jerusalem church. They joined the church. I mean, God is gathering his people. Now that the Son has ascended to the right hand of God, God is gathering his people into these little colonies of heaven. That's what the church is. Puritans call it a colony of heaven. We're gathered together from the world. And what are we doing? Well, it says we're devoted to the apostles' teaching. The word devoted means that we're singularly focused. We're looking at the teaching. We're learning how to live in light of the gospel together as a community of faith. We're devoted to the teaching. We're, we're coming to be instructed. So, so when they join the one local church, it's week after week, they're hearing the same word broken from the same pulpit, creating kind of an environment for spiritual conversations whereby we can encourage one another. doesn't mean the podcasts are bad. It doesn't mean that going to conferences is bad. But the primary diet usually comes from the same pulpit, the voice, the same leadership speaking the scriptures to you so that you're prepared to see God on that final day. But not just devoted to the apostles' teaching, it also says that they're devoted to fellowship. The kind of fellowship that the early church had in chapter 2 wasn't experienced prior to the coming of the Spirit. In fact, the word fellowship's not even in the Gospels. There wasn't this type of fellowship. This type of fellowship, that word fellowship, by the way, just means sharing or holding things in common. Of course, they'll go on to talk about that they held all things in common, even their even much of their material goods. Now, it's not an advocacy for socialism, right? Because it says in verse 46 that they broke bread in their own home. So there's still private property going on. But what it's saying is we're sharing with one another because we see, you know what? We've all heard the gospel with conviction. We've seen our sin before God. We've all repented and we've all been baptized. We're speaking the one language of the spirit. And so we're going to help one another. But the issue with fellowship isn't just sharing our goods, but sharing our lives. In other words, you, you, it's hard when your community is constantly shifting and changing. It's hard to be transparent and open with one another. It's hard to be committed to one another. I, I mean, it'd be like multiple marriages, one after another after another. You know, the, the purpose of us signing a church covenant is because when you're added to their number, it's like a marriage of sorts. It's a covenant. When you become a member of a church, you're not signing a contract so that if we don't fulfill our responsibilities, you just cut and go, like a lot of people may see in their relationships. We sign a church covenant. We're promising to walk with one another in faith and love. And, and, and the idea of fellowship is I'm coming to you to give to you what you need. I, I'm not coming to you with my needs, although I trust your needs will be met, I'm coming to you to meet your needs. That, that's, that's the mind of the one entering fellowship. Do you realize how countercultural this is? I'm coming to a church, and I'm thinking, how can I meet their needs, rather than just have my needs met? 
That's why we need the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit of God reminds us that He's going to provide us with everything. And the gifts and the talents and the abilities I have, I want to meet the needs of others. That's why the church is to be so contrary to the world. Because everybody else looks at things in a meritorious or a, or a uh, quid pro quo relationship. Not so the church. And then you see that they're also devoted to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That's kind of a euphemism for worship, including the Lord's Supper. That they were worshiping together, that they were actively engaging in this regular coming together to worship. And that's what we call you all to do. That when you're baptized, you're baptized into this church where you worship. That you're attending actively, regularly. You know, for our church, and it's probably true of a lot of evangelical churches, there is a large swing that, uh, that are not necessarily committed to attending every week. In fact, for our church, we have about 25% that, uh, that don't show up every week. It's not the same 25%. I'm not looking to chide you. Look, you're standing here looking at me. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just saying that that's the kind of swing that we have, that if everybody showed up at every service, we'd need probably three services. And, and, and so I just want to, what I'm telling you this for is because I think part of hearing the gospel with conviction that leads to repentance and faith leads to a commitment to the community, which is being here. And so encourage your brothers and sisters when you don't see them. When I do it, it sounds self-serving, as if I'm trying to just generate more people to attend. But, but for you to say, hey, we all covenant it with one another. Uh, this is, the, church, the church is really an incubator of faith. The church incubates, it grows you. So Augustine, you know him, referred him a number of times. He's the church father of the fourth century. Listen to what he writes about the need that we have to be in the church as kind of an incubator. He says, certainly the renewal of the inner man that we are discussing is not accomplished in one moment of conversion. It's not like the renewal that occurs in a spiritual baptism that comes at the moment we receive forgiveness. He says, no, it's one thing to recover from a fever. It's another thing to regain one's health after the body has been terribly weakened by the illness. It's one thing to remove a spear from the body, and it's another to heal a nearly mortal wound by means of long and careful treatment. I'm telling you that removing the cause is only the first step in the cure. This first step as concerns the healing of your soul is the moment when your sins are forgiven or conversion. He says there is, in addition, the need to heal the spiritual illness itself. This is accomplished gradually, day by day, as you progressively erase the image of fallen man within and renew yourself in the image of God. That's what happens through our lives. That's why we need one another. So here you have this beautiful picture of conversion. What does it mean that God is saving the world and gathering a people to himself? Well, it's hearing the gospel well. And that means with conviction of sins, now I realize that I've sinned against God. And then, and then the next link is that when I see that I sinned against God, to just walk away from that is, is absolutely hazardous. And I would say this to you, that if you're not a Christian here, you know, the passage that was read was, it says Peter continued to plead with them to save themselves from this crooked generation. That this is a gospel presentation that you must respond to. And, and that if you're not a Christian and you're thinking about these things, then I would encourage you to come forward and ask questions or, or, or seek answers that you have to the bigger questions of life that we all have. Why are we here? What's our purpose in life? What happens after death? Those are all great questions 
that we, the elder, the leadership of this church, love to address. So, so the repent and be baptized, and then joining the local church. This is what God's doing: is He's gathering a community. Now, we want to, when we look at baptism, we want to avoid two errors, right? The one error would be to make too little of it. I'll hear sometimes people will say to me, "Well, I've already been spiritually baptized. I, I was born again. I placed my faith in Christ, and I'm living for Him now. And, and baptism doesn't save anyway, so therefore, it's not really that big a deal." And you have the thief on the cross, he wasn't baptized. And I would just say, I would have you rethink that, that position. Uh, Jesus does command it. So I, wanna, I don't want to knowingly walk in perfect disobedience to Christ. You know, so, so why would you want to defy a clear command that you know, the apostles are to go into all the world baptizing them, so why aren't you baptized? Secondly, I would just point out that baptism is a physical thing representing a spiritual truth. And so our bodies being dunked and raised is really not just a public declaration, but it's really declaring to us that we're living for Christ, not just mentally and creedally, but we're living for him with our lives. Now, you can also swing on the other side, and you can misunderstand baptism as being kind of like a coming out party. This is an experience for me with God. And it's going to be when I unite myself to God. But baptism is, is uniting ourselves with God and with the rest of the church. And, and to just see it as not attached to then adding to their number and to see it as not attached to wanting to join the church is to misunderstand it. So, so you're not baptized into a spiritual church. You're baptized into a local expression of the kingdom of God where you then enter the incubator and you grow up in faith. So, so that's a word about baptism. Just think of those three links of a chain, hearing the gospel well with conviction, repenting and being baptized, and then adding to the number, engaging the community of faith. So right now what we have is we have uh, testimonies that we're going to show you on the video. You can lower the video if you want, and, or the screen. And um, we have five people who are being baptized, and uh, we ask them certain questions, and, uh, and they will be providing to you in a public way uh, the work that God has done in their life. Thank you.